Welcome to this week's episode of Crime and Wine. This is Pamela Fagan Hutchins, and this is the show where I talk with other crime fiction writers about the stories that will thrill, chill, and mystify you. Today's special guests are, first, Ken Oder. He is the award-winning author of the Whippoorwill Hollow novels. And the second is our high school student, Ian, who is job shadowing me today. Now, I told Ian that watching a writer as a job shadowing opportunity is like watching paint dry, but he says he's up for it. So let's jump into the conversation with Ken and Ian. So Ken, if you were taking yourself back to 10th grade and you were picturing that young, bright-eyed boy that you were, and you wanted to coach him about being a writer someday. What piece of advice would you dispense? I Talk about throwing you to the wolves here and putting you on the spot. Yeah, I think the, the probably two key things you need to do if you want to be a writer. And <clears throat> one of them is you need to read good writing. You need yeah. to read the classics. You need to read all you can get your hands on. Read all the time. Mm-hmm. And you need to read uh, some things that you think are bad writing, too. After you get into them, if you think they're bad writing, keep reading them and keep figuring out why you think they're bad. And then you need to write every day. You need to. You don't have to write a whole lot, but you need to write regularly and um I started a journal back when I was about, I think it was about the seventh grade. And I kept doing that and it, it helped me, you know, it's writing is much harder than people think it is. People think, you know, we'll just sit down and we'll just spin it out. Well, you start trying to do that a little bit and see how it goes. (laughs) Uh, Writing is a matter of practice and a matter of learning the craft. Mm-hmm. And if you, the sooner you start and the more you do it, the better you'll be. Ian's already been doing some practicing, I will say. Mm-hmm. Are you a big reader too? Um, I do read quite a bit. Not as much during like the school year itself. Cause you know, I'm like I said, busy. And then also I forced to read anyway during like school <laughs> enough, I feel like, but then during the summer I do usually read a lot. He has been, um, sharing with me that what he writes is at this point, he's pretty um, multi-genre and he's started moving into short stories that are getting a little longer and a little longer mm-hmm. each time. So he's, he's starting to grow, grow that. Do you ever journal? Um, I journal occasionally more for like, not, yeah, I can't usually for more like like what frustrated me today, what was good today, what was whatever. And then, I don't know, I've, I'm i not very good about doing that consistently because usually I just forget. And then I don't like, I'll get to it and I don't really know like what to put down all the time. Yeah. And maybe like putting down just ideas that I have for like writing in it while I'm doing that would be yeah. a good idea to start doing that. That sounds like a good approach. The good thing about a journal, too, is nobody ever has to see it. So you can pretty much write whatever you want, write bad stuff, too. I mean, (laughs) you know, you could do whatever you want with it. I actually didn't start reading until I was 11 years old. I 
I hated uh, reading books and stuff. <laughs> and uh, my, uh, <clears throat> my uncle and aunt sent me a birthday present. And it was the book Treasure Island. And I started reading that. And boy, that really set me off. And I kept going from there. And I think, uh, let's see, around the 10th grade is when I discovered Hemingway. And Seahawks. Old Man in the Sea. And um, let's see, For Whom the Bell Tolls. I read the, those are those are great novels and they inspired me a lot and got me thinking maybe I wanted to be a writer too. Right. Have you read any Hemingway? Um yeah, I have actually. I've read A Farewell to Arms because for our book critiques that we do for history and that was for our World War 2. No. World War 1. Yeah, it wasn't it set in World War 1. It was World War 1. Yeah, that's what I was um, thinking. Yeah, I was, he was like, in Spain. Yeah. That's right, that's or right. was it? Oh man, Ken, do you it know? Was World War Spanish, the Spanish Revolution. It's the Spanish Revolution, oh, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because it, all of a sudden, I was having that wait. He was in Spain, and it was like, wait, was that the farewell to arms? Um, I, it was in... because that was where, or was that for whom the I belt think he falls? was in Italy Dang. during the farewell to arms because he was an ambulance driver, from what I remember. Or was that? Yeah, that was Robert Jordan. That actually. I said, for whom the bell tolls, I really meant a farewell to arms. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm getting old, you know. I'm, yes. I got a lot of lapses here. You got to be careful. Which I believe wasn't it a farewell to arms that he wrote mostly in Wyoming because he used to he summer did here. some of that. In, yeah. He, in fact, where we're sitting on the face <laughs> of the Bighorns, <laughs> he used to, at the beginning of the summer, go up the Red Grade Road, which is behind us. And if you're familiar with the Bighorns in Wyoming, it's a really gnarly road. <laughs> and then he would spend time up here in the mountains, fly fishing. Um, Sparrow Wigwam was one <laughs> of his hangouts. And that's a, a, a to this day, um, rejuvenated lodge and um, vacation spot. Anyway, and A Farewell to Arms was the book he was working on the summer or two summers that he was Wyoming. Uh -huh. I'm pretty sure he completed it in the Sheraton Hotel, didn't yes. he? Yeah, one yes. of the rooms there. Yeah, so we we um, we have our, our claim mm -hmm. to Hemingway here. Mm -hmm. I went to Key West this last year and I went to the house that he lived in on um, Key West and saw the famous six-toed cats and stuff. So I'm getting, a, you know, I'm branching out and getting more and more of my Hemingway. There's a uh, Facebook group about Hemingway, uh, you know, a Facebook page for Hemingway, and they send out stuff every couple of days about Hemingway. And there's a lot of this stuff about the Key West area. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of his style? Um, it was very like, I don't know. He very he was had a really good way of describing the war. Because it was very miserable, it, like the best way I can put it. Yeah. And the war just sucked all around. And it's very yeah. like, I don't want to say like, like I said, it's dull, like in a way to kind of explain that it was like very dreary, very, yeah. right. he didn't, yeah, it kind of like was dull. And then it kind of contrasted with like the, um, his relationship with the nurse in that book. I can't remember, I can't remember her name right now, but cause that those parts are very different and like, you can show how he kind of like changed like between the like actual war and then that between there. And then also another thing I really picked up on that I talked about a lot in my paper is how much they drink like throughout the <laughs> entire book. 
Yes. Because yes. they just want to like escape the war. Mm-hmm. They're all like everyone in that book is an alcoholic, like majorly. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah they're actually, a lot of what you read about Hemingway, both fiction, his fiction and his life, there's a lot of drinking in there. I mean, yeah. he was he was drinking pretty heavy. He drinks a lot. In you know they they do a, they did a Hemingway um, uh, anniversary festival this last year for a lot of his books and Wyoming participated because of our small claim to him, and one of the uh, Sheridan College historians was telling me he didn't drink himself to death he drank because and that that he had some medical conditions and depression and mm-hmm. lingering pain from injuries from um, you know his wartime experience yeah, he did have a lot of injuries that made war. him self-medicate mm-hmm. so. so you know i was a lawyer before um i retired and i represented in a case the first literary agent in hollywood a guy named uh, harold swanson who everybody calls swanee and he represented <clears throat> i didn't know this when i went in to meet with him about the case and I found out as I was sitting there that he represented most of the major literary figures in that period. In, and he was negotiating with movie studios, taking their novels and have, you know negotiating the rights of the novel so that they could make them into a movie. Mm-hmm. And he represented Hemingway in a few instances. And he represented, God, he represented everybody. He represented Faulkner and Fitzgerald and... Uh, so he wrote <clears throat> after, uh, well, after I represented him, he wrote a novel, uh, not a novel, a, a memoir. And uh, I read the memoir. And in there, he talks about how Hemingway didn't have any friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literary guys. Uh, I guess Fitzgerald and he were big pen pals, but they weren't great friends. And Fitzgerald was an alcoholic mm-hmm. as well. And so they had a lot of trouble. But the funniest stories were about Faulkner. He talked about Faulkner being, um, he would drink, he would, he would, he was a binge drinker and he would start drinking and he would, he had a guy he hired that would take him to a hotel where he would just try to stay away from everybody while he drank because he would get really obnoxious and he would start taking his clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> into the drinking until he was just flat out buck naked, you know, and blottoed. And then he would, he would get past it and he would go, you know, he would come back to life. And <laughs> I want to be very clear that we are not advising Ian, that in order to be a writer, <laughs> that he needs to get blotto and take his clothes off. That is actually a negative. That's a, that's yeah, a bad, a that's a career, bad thing. Um, but they do make for these larger than life epic stories about some of these people that, you know, are just names on a on a title page to us anymore. But to Swanee, they were real humans that were his clients. Yeah, and that's what really sticks out to me. There is that they're real humans. That you know, you just uh, poor Ian's been kidnapped. It's like, how do you shadow a writer? Well, the yeah. writer works from home. <laughs> You're coming up the mountain with me. We're going to talk <laughs> writing up the mountain, and you know, and that's that the writers are just normal people with real lives, but. Our readers think, and hello, readers, our (laughs) readers start to think of us as something different. I don't want to say more, but different because to us, we are the sum of our stories or the sum of what they've heard about us. And and so it's 
it's interesting when you hear about those writers and you and you discover more of the real human behind them because they didn't have Facebook. They weren't dramatically overexposed <laughs> like I am, right, Ken? Yeah, or me either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. So Ken writes mystery, thriller, suspense, mm -hmm. romance, narrative, nonfiction, multi-genre, but um, kind of bleeds over into some of what I do. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love his Whippoorwill hollow novels. And so for you guys out there that are watching the show, um, start with the closing, but, you know, re run the table. But he's also written a romance. It was... Uh, the Princess of, okay, help me, yeah, Sugar the Valley? Princess, the Princess of Sugar Valley. Yes. And then your, your absolutely amazing book of essays and um, your nonfiction take or Ken's nonfiction look at the world. Um, tell, tell us about uh, the name of that and how it came to be. Yeah, that's, uh, well, we published the first 50 blogs that I wrote. Um you know, you you and Bobby Mars talked me into writing a blog back. This must be seven or eight years ago now. We needed to bridge him. He would he would go through these periods of not writing, mm -hmm. and we wanted him to keep writing all the mm -hmm. time. And so we said, just he's like, but I don't have any story ideas. I said, okay, we'll just write about your life, write about all these wonderful stories you regale us with at writers retreats, right? <laughs> and so he started doing it, and they're magic. They're just magic. They're so good. <laughs> well, the first one I wrote was actually about that literary agent. Yeah. And handling that case and the things he told me and the relationship I developed with him and how much I enjoyed him. And so that was that was kind of the beginning of it. But that book is I've published those and it's a free book online. And I think we sell it for $6.50 or something like that <clears throat> in paperback. <clears throat> and it's called Keeping the Promise. Keeping the mm -hmm. Promise. That's right. Yeah. And you uh, did. You kept your promise. Yeah. I, I'm still writing those monthly blogs. I've probably written 20 or 25 more since we published that. So there'll be a volume two. There'll be a volume two. Volume two later on. Yeah. Um. And I'm not going to ask Ken how his current novel is going because mm -hmm. that would be putting him on the spot. He <laughs> takes breaks between mm -hmm. each one. Life gets in the way. Like you're expecting some grandbabies right now, right? Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, I've got the horses driving me uh, out to the barn every day and I've got the the twins coming. Behind him of his horses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Grandchildren already. So it's not like I've got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, But I am trying to work on it. I've got... You know, I've, I don't know whether you, this doesn't happen to you, I don't think. Pamela is the most disciplined, prolific writer of our times, at least prolific writer of high quality of our times. You, uh, you, you exaggerate, but thank you. don't have much quality, but <laughs> maintains high quality and manages to somehow churn out three to five books a year while I'm sitting over here trying to get one book every three to five years. Contractual know? obligation right now has me <laughs> scrambling. <laughs> Stop saying yes, Pamela. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and there is no pressure. We wait for Ken to come up with something fabulous and then we celebrate. So it's no big deal. Ken is better at saying no than I am. Now, Ian, do you have any questions that were in what you were suggested to ask today that you want to ask Ken and I while you've got two writers in the room? Not any pressure there on Ian either. <laughs> Um, well, I kind of talked to 
I kind of heard it from you, but I guess I haven't really asked Pamela about it. I mean, you can both put in. It's about, like, when did you kind of get, like, interested and, in, like, how did you get interested into writing specifically? And, like, C is, like, what, like, this is going to be my career field. I want to do this. I never thought it would be my career. I knew that I could not help but write. Mm -hmm. um, even if it was, you know, I used to do as a lawyer, Ken was also an employment lawyer. I was an employment mm -hmm. lawyer that got out of practicing law and I did investigations. I was mm -hmm. a card carrying private investigator for mm -hmm. a very short period of time, in addition to being a lawyer investigator. And so I would do investigations into misconduct if people got in trouble at work. And wow. I would churn out these 60, 80 page reports. I mean, fingers flying. Mm -hmm. I'd interview all these witnesses who pinched whose butt. And did you really <laughs> send her, a, you know, a, a, that picture on your phone? How, mm -hmm. how dumb are you? You know, those kinds mm -hmm. of cases like Ken's cases, but mine were earlier on in the process. Mm -hmm. And I just, it was never a chore to me. And so mm -hmm. I was behind the scenes. I was writing, but I was never finishing. And then I met this guy whose hair was a little bit too long. He liked to surf and play the bass, a chemical engineer. His name's Eric. Ken's <laughs> laughing because he's friends with Eric. And, um, and he said, if you marry me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mind <laughs> you, I was 38, 39 years old at this point. And I was um, general counsel for a refining um, company that was, you know, one of the biggest refineries in the world. And I said, I think I've kind of, you know, I've kind of done some things. And he said, no. What dreams have you not fulfilled? And it was that question that made me say, I want to finish a novel. Well, two mm -hmm. years later, he's like, where the beep is your novel? And, um, and so we went on a trip to India and I wrote a novella as fast as I could, 20,000 words. And it was basically a spoof of our life. Mm -hmm. He said, this is great. Keep going. And I did. Mm -hmm. Pretty soon I had one novel and then two and then three. And at that point, uh, he said, send them to agents. And agents said, send us your books. And I sent them into contests and they said, you won. And all this stuff started <laughs> happening. And I, my first book came out and it made money. And he's like, I told you this is going to be great. And, and then it was like this, right? Let's uh -huh. see if I can get this on camera. So you start out and think, man, this is awesome. I am a writer and you mm -hmm. are. But I was like, I'm a writer who makes money. And then you're a writer who doesn't make money. And then you're a writer who makes money again. And then you're a writer who loses money. And then you're a writer who makes a lot of money. And it's just back and forth and back and forth. But I probably quit and became a full-time writer six years ago, seven years ago. And, um, and there are years where I do quite well and there are years where I don't. But I never think I can stop writing or I don't want to write. I think, mm -hmm. how can I keep making this work? Because it's all I can do mm -hmm. anymore if that makes sense. It became mm -hmm. the thing that I love to hate because writing doesn't love you back. Right, Ken? <laughs> no, it, <laughs> no does. it does not love you back. You love the, during the process, it doesn't love you back. It, it pretty much hates you. It hates you so <clears throat> during the process. But mm -hmm. when you finish something, when you've reached uh, the level with a, with a, with a piece that, you know is what you wanted to say and it's good and it feels good yeah uh there's nothing quite like that there's nothing like that and you know, you know that the part that i love too ken is <clears throat> i love the experience you get when other people dive into your worlds and they begin to talk about them as if they're real and they are mm -hmm. real you created them and they exist they just 
aren't in the same dimension as the rest of us are living in. But when they're talking about your characters and they're talking about your places and, and what happened to them and you, and you realize you've made a connection, you've closed a loop, if you will. So it can be rewarding. It just you know, hurts. There's, most a, of the time. there's another phenomenon, which we talked about at one of your writing conferences. Um, you asked the question of those of us who were there, what's the thing you like most about the writing process? Yeah. Or since the process is mostly edit, 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 you know, kill yourself, edit. Bleed, bleed, bleed. But I, the thing that I like, <clears throat> which I didn't know at the time whether it was normal, <laughs> was that I had several instances, many of them, where the characters I was writing about seemed to take on a life of their own. And yeah. they, they started talking to me. Yeah. I mean, they're not in the room and they're not, you know, I'm not crazy. Uh, believe me. <laughs> not in the room really <laughs> talking to me, but I could, I could, occasionally I could hear their voices. Right. Could hear, I'd be writing and they would say something. It felt like they were saying it. It had to come out of me, but it felt like this person was there and saying, whispering in my ear. And so those voices in my head, those were really exciting and fun. And uh, I remember saying that in your conference and being a little nervous about it and kind of sitting there for a, a second. I think it was Jim Cole at the time. Yeah. He was there with us. Yeah. He said in a soft voice next to me, I thought I was the only one. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the chief thrills. It's like you'll be, you think when you try to impose your will on a story, oftentimes it doesn't go so well. It's one of the positives and negatives of, um, you know, when you write crime fiction, it's very plot driven. You have to have some kind of outline or you're going to get totally lost in the weeds. But yet at the same time, you have to leave yourself the freedom for the voices to speak to you because they're going to. And if you try to force your way past and impose your will on those voices, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. It's better to just stop and say, okay, why am I laughing? Why am I crying? What's coming? Open myself up to it. And, and, and this is going to become the kind of story that I tell. So I think I probably said something along that lines or something more brilliant back at the, at the writer's retreat. I, so a lot of times what you find is that writers make no money. And so they have all these side hustles um, and, 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 or they have their day job and writing is what you do in the middle of the night or, you know, whatever. Right. And so um, you'll find writers that are editors. You'll find writers that are um, uh, teachers, teachers, right. A whole lot of teachers are writers and vice versa. Just to use a, a local example, Craig Johnson used to teach at Sheridan college, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so anyway, you'll find writers that are cover artists that are um, all kinds of things that format books for people, but they try to figure out something they can do to have the, you know, their whole heart in the industry at the same mm -hmm. time as they have to eat somehow and until we land those television deals, we don't make a whole lot of money regularly. So um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else brilliant that I've ever said, Ken. That may have been mm -hmm. the pinnacle moment for me. You know, it's yeah, she wrote a book um, early on about indie publishing. And there were things in there, advice she gave to people who were who were like me, who were at that time, I was, I was just drafting um, novels and I was sending them out. I wasn't getting a whole lot of 
you know, I get something back, which is one more than most people got, but I, I wouldn't get acceptances. Mm -hmm. So, um, she was, she, she had a bunch of points that she said we should all try to follow. And one of the most profound was you said, try not to suck. (laughs) (laughs) I did say that. Yeah. And have, I, you been, I, have you been trying? You try not to yeah, suck. That's good. That's, I find myself trying not to suck a lot. I mean, you really, <clears throat> that's a lot of what you do. And Lamont called it um, shitty first drafts. Um, or yeah. you know, you know, whatever it is, it's become something that you show your high school class and they're like, you had more fun than me today. You, you know, they're just like throwing around all the bad words. But um, but yeah, you try not to suck and you, but you keep going anyway. You also wrote a section wow. about why you write and you talked about some of what you said earlier, like you, you kind of, why I write, I kind of have to write. I, I need yeah. to get it out and I need to, I need to, to craft it and to make it better. And, uh, but it's also, if you write, if you write something good, it's probably going to have a big piece of your soul in it. Yeah. And it's going to come out. And I remember I, I'm paraphrasing now, but there was a, a toward the end of a, a section that you wrote about this, you said um, to the reader, take my heart, feel it in your hand, pass it around. Yeah. It's kind of how you feel. You're very vulnerable when you lay out that exactly. that novel. Do you, Ian, when you write, do you feel that? Do you feel that like it's scary, like you're putting yourself out there? Um, somewhat, yeah. I mean, not maybe not the putting yourself out there because I don't really like pub like I'm not publishing not, anything. Yeah, it's yeah. just mostly myself. But like maybe like letting people, other people see it. I'm kind of anxious about it because you know. I might think it's okay, but then like, what are they going to think? Or I think it sucks. And then <laughs> are they going to think, think it sucks? sucks? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, are they going to see that I disclosed something I really cared about? Are they going to see that I don't like my neighbor or my friend? You know, Right. Are they going to like catch all the nuances <laughs> yeah. and like all sorts of things like that? Yeah. So, yeah it's a, a little bit. I'm not really like publishing anything. So yeah. it's a little. You can hide it still a little bit. Right. When when um, I was first uh, getting closer to publishing and I was working with an editor, mm-hmm. I sent her a scene I was so proud of. I thought mm-hmm. I was so raw in this mm-hmm. scene emotionally. She sent it back and she said, not quite. Mm-hmm. She said, no, go mm-hmm. deeper, show more. And I'm like, I was mm-hmm. angry. It was like, I poured my heart out. I gave you my heart and let you pass it around, mm-hmm. you know, in this scene. And she said, I don't believe you. I don't believe mm-hmm. you do it again. And you're like, okay, so obviously in trying not to suck, I still suck, but <laughs> let me try it again. And I finally got to the point where I felt like I had literally just vomited all over the floor and rolled in it, you know, where it's like, this is as raw as it gets. And she's mm-hmm. like, okay, that'll do. <laughs> okay, good. That was super fun. <laughs> but that's, that's what it feels like. And you're like, but it's just a character. But it isn't. You have to feel it mm-hmm. with them. You have to like put yourself in the shoes of the, you know, he was telling me about a story he's writing. Can I tell him? A little bit <laughs> yeah, about this? Okay. And it's um, a post-apocalyptic and they don't have electronics anymore. And so, you know, you, you know, the age of a character by what 80s or 90s, you know, 
cassette tapes they're listening to right, because that's, that's what they have. Yeah, wow. so they have like CDs and cassette tapes. And then like my main characters are like a duo and they had, they're kind of like late teens and they listen to like 90s rap because that's kind of more speaks to them. And it's like newer in a sense where it's not like, it's not new, but it's closer. Whereas their mentor listens to more like 80s and kind of like, 70s even rock and stuff like that and then you can see like a crossover kind of a little bit where like it's like the mentor influences them and what they listen to and then the um the main characters list like influence the mentor a little bit and like you can kind of see how they their relationship is a little bit so we can start to see here the the budding the buds of characterization coming out so it's fun for me and then you start to think okay how what bad things are going to happen to them? You know, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, and not only are there songs that describe that, that, that you know, that thematically go with it, but mm-hmm. what bad things are going to happen to them and how vividly can I explore how they mm-hmm. feel and yeah, what and the world like, looks like. To and them then like, how are they going to deal with that? How is that going to affect exactly. going them going forward? Right. Who do they like, become because of it? Right. And like, I have um, like in that story of the before, it's like, mainly like the main character they like lose everything like yeah. they're by themselves they lose their family they lose their friends or whatever because you know everybody's gone and it's like how does that affect them yeah and that's what drives them forward for a lot of of it do you find that when you try to imagine it do you feel the feelings as you're writing do you feel mm-hmm. sad and do you feel do you act cranky if your characters are fighting my husband's always mm-hmm. like who fought in your books today you're <laughs> impossible (laughs) a lot of those times when i'm trying to like think of a scene i like and i'm like thinking of it it's like this like um really emotional scene i'll be like actually feeling it it's like or like really like anger and i'll like get in like into it or yeah mm -hmm. if somebody walked in right now i would snap their head off because i am this character Mm -hmm. and we are really mad and Yeah. yeah and and then you know you let yourself completely feel it so that you can really viscerally like talk i think you were talking mm-hmm. about this with hemingway that he could get really visceral that you can really mm-hmm. viscerally describe it you know crying mm-hmm. until snot comes out of your nose as opposed to crying right you know right. and things like that so anyway well, he said hemingway said uh, write plain and hard about what hurts exactly That's see yeah he- i feel like hemingway has a lot of Sometimes when I read something, it's like you can tell when an author is like just trying to like make a emotional scene seem like vivid where mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like they've been actually feeling it. They're mm-hmm. just like, oh, she was so depressingly sad or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then like Hemingway has this way of like he's very blunt about it. Blunt, yes. And he shows it. feel that he like he's feeling that. He or felt, the characters feel like He shows that. it. He doesn't tell it. He shows it. Uh-huh. Right. He was a, he was a groundbreaker, I guess, from what I've read about it. And he was a newspaper reporter. So he he re, he wrote in short, plain uh, sentences. Economic, really right. word it, it very it got to the point very quickly. And very it's economic. Not, a lot of like big like very extravagant words describing things it's very very blunt very you juxtapose him like to a john irving right or you know someone and you're like "Hmm, we could learn a little something from hemingway here right i mean still some beautiful writing but hemingway showed that 
Yes. Yes. I mean, they're opposites. They're on the opposite pole. Total. Mm -hmm. And and you and you you see that you have to be able to show the story to the reader. You Mm -hmm. have to be able to get them to feel the feelings of the characters and and be in those moments. You don't Mm -hmm. have to use big words. Right. You don't have to use a lot of words. You no. use the right amount of words. Yeah, I feel he like there's like a line. He mm-hmm. also was uh, against what what I guess I would call overwriting, which he had he had something called he he de- he described it as the iceberg theory, which is that he was writing to show the reader the the iceberg that's above water, and he's assuming that the reader will know that there mm-hmm. is stuff below the surface. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to tell them. If he writes well about the top, mm-hmm. the reader will know what's below the surface. And so there that's part of why it could be economic. He's assuming some intelligence on the part of the reader. It's kind of a partnership that mm-hmm. um, he assumes the reader comes to the book with a certain amount of knowledge and he doesn't have to overwrite the whole situation. So you're getting, uh, that's some of what you were talking about, right? is that that approach that he takes. Yeah, I feel like there's like a line there, definitely. That's like, you can still use the extravagant words to like describe things and like these like long metaphorical, like figurative language and things like that. And then there's another, there's other times where it's just like, there's no need to... That, like after a certain point, it kind of bores the reader. And also it's just can be hard to understand Yeah, where it's easier to just like, like a blunt, like you just describe it and you just do it. basically, if it, that's the best way I feel like I can. It's like it, it dilutes the impact, right. you know? And, um, and, and so when you think about if you just were a robot and you just looked at what Hemingway wrote with short sentences and short words mm-hmm. and, and not a lot of um, narrative complexity in places, mm-hmm. you'd say that that is written at a whatever level, age grade or whatever. Right. But you're taking away the genius of all that ability to convey mm-hmm. feeling with word economy and what Ken's talking about, that ability to assume so much intelligence mm-hmm. into the reader that it drives up um what you're expecting and needing to bring to the table in order to get what it is he's delivering Mm -hmm. so it's it's fantastic Mm -hmm. i think that he's absolutely wonderful now um have you read faulkner that we were talking about naked faulkner um there's not a lot of of that in his books Mm -hmm. but it's very dark Mm -hmm. i think it's a very dark southern kind of gothic um have you read steinbeck like of mice and men Oh, yes, I yeah. have. Yeah. And I, I think that's another one that's kind of a. Per- Something's happened here. Hello. Spot here and we wait. There we go. Um, do you read anybody in particular in like the fantasy genre or the fantasy genre? I like a lot of um, Rick Riordan. Mm-hmm. I, I've read I like all the Percy Jackson yeah. books. I really like especially how he incorporates. His characters are very relatable, mm-hmm. like, and I like how he does that. Is that they're no- they're normal people, even though they're like demigods and right. these super like powered people and whatever. And it's it's very interesting to see like how relatable he makes them because they go through everyday struggles. Readers, mm-hmm. Percy Jackson, awesome. But mm-hmm. did you know that 
Rick Reardon was a successful adult mystery writer before he ever tackled middle grade fiction. Mm -hmm. Had to throw that out there. Long series featuring a, um, a great character in San Antonio, which of course is where the Percy Jackson books originated mm -hmm. as well. But anyway, had to throw that in. I In our readers group um, this week, we were trying to give... Um, uh, author recommendations to, I'm going to say your name wrong, Frank, but one of the group members, Frank Lamone, Layman, Lamone, and I left this guy off the list. Rick Reardon writes really good mysteries. He doesn't do it anymore because mm -hmm. Percy Jackson became so incredibly successful, mm -hmm. but he wrote um, mysteries for adults. So um, yeah. yeah, I love Rick Reardon. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that also kind of shows like as a writer, you can be very varied and like, like he did the mysteries before that. And then he does like fantasy young adult fiction yeah. and things. And it's just, it was, it was a beautiful mm -hmm. transition. Mm -hmm. Storytellers tell stories, writers write. And this mm -hmm. may be a good place to leave it as we encourage Ian to go off into his world, his life mm -hmm. as a writer is that writers write. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what they write. They just keep writing. Doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it sucks. They keep writing until someday it sucks less. And someday they figure out what it is they want to write this time or, or they're like Ken and they write romance and they write essayist type of narrative nonfiction and they write mm -hmm. mysteries, et cetera. They just write. You just write what's in your, you write what's in your heart. Exactly. Whatever it may be. I would, uh, I'll give you one suggestion yeah. too for your reading list. I would, uh, I would read Stephen King's book on writing. Oh, I love that book. It's an incredibly helpful book. And, and fun read. Yeah, I mean, what's not to love about a horror writer um, mm -hmm. with a sense of humor who is dispensing advice, sometimes with the subtlety of a machine gunner, but other times with this just wit. Uh, and he tells all these stories about his life and his writing right. and how he became the success he is. It's kind of, there. if there's two books on writing, the craft of writing as an encouragement that I really turn to. One is Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, but nice. even more, it's Stephen King on writing. And mm -hmm. I would read that over and over just for the pleasure of it right. and the validation of what it means to be a writer. Because Stephen King is not a snob. Mm -hmm. Stephen King um, <laughs> is, he is just every man out there, horrifying the world. <laughs> He tried to make a living. He tried to teach and wrote at night and uh, everything he wrote was rejected. Uh, the, I think it was Carrie was the first book that was accepted. It's and his a, wife pulled it out of the trash and said, yeah, yeah, torn it up and thrown it in the trash. Yeah. She said, Stephen, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think this this may be the one. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Carrie yes. or seen the movie? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So I was telling him earlier that Stephen. She wife says, I think you've got something good here. You should work on this some more. And so he does. And he sends it off to his agent who hasn't been able to sell anything for him except to a, you know, an article to field and stream here and there and stuff like that. And uh, the agent calls him up. This is part of why I really like this book, because it tells you what it's like to finally make it. You know, he his agent calls him up and tells him, are you sitting down? He said, I've sold your book. Are you sitting down? He said, and he's standing in the hallway and the guy says, I've sold it for $350,000. Now, this is a guy who's just been barely they were They were in poverty level living. Yeah. And he he leans up against the wall. He slides down the wall into a sitting position. 
and his wife is away and he's trying to think after he hangs up, what's he going to do to get <clears throat> her a present for all she did to keep him going. And he runs off to the store and he can't find anything and nothing's working. And he ends up buying a vacuum cleaner. And bringing it <laughs> I just love that. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I was thinking besides watching writers write is like watching paint dry, you know, what would be, um, for his shadow day, most telling about what the life of a writer is like, and it would be that it is just really ordinary, mm-hmm. and that there's so few of them that have that almost larger than life life, you know, mm-hmm. with the television shows and the, the this and the that. That this is this conversation we're mm-hmm. having. Writers sitting around talking about writing. This is what writers do. So you have just experienced the life of writer. It's yeah. also a form of procrastination. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about writing instead of doing it. <laughs> Can you? You're awesome. And I've got a confession. The very beginning, when I hit record, it didn't. But I caught it within about thirty seconds. So I'm going to go back and fake an opening. <laughs> okay. You have to. Uh, okay. <laughs> My dog is getting picked up to go work here. So. Oh, she's excited. <laughs> yeah. Or he. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing doing the show. And, um, and, and don't be a stranger. All right. Well, nice meeting you, Ian. Yeah, and nice good luck you. with your writing. You, I, you know, I taught high school. Mm-hmm. You're, uh, as a sophomore, you're way up there. He really you're, is. You're really yeah. I think you should keep it up. Mm-hmm. And it's great to see you again, Pamela. I wish we could do this more often. Absolutely. Anytime. I have, I've got the, I've got all the equipment so we can have fancy conversations. I can, you guys go check out the closing. If you're just starting the series on Whippoorwill hollow and, uh, and if not just starting, you can pull it up on Amazon and see all the books in the series. And I promise you're going to enjoy it. As far as Ian here, he's only probably Mm -hmm. got about another hour with me and I'm Mm -hmm. trying to think of what I can do to torture him. I mean, (laughs) teach him about writing. So I'll see you guys on another episode and everyone out there, take care and read a good book. Bye. Thanks for joining us today on Crime and Wine, chats with crime fiction authors and Pamela Fagan Hutchins. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll check back in with us next time for more thrills, suspense, And stories that will mystify, sometimes horrify, and always leave you wanting more.